All right, friends, we're going to do this in rapid-fire fashion. Uh, This Sunday and next Sunday, we are going to go through in a rather survey process of the book of Revelation. Uh, It's one that we have a lot of curiosity about. I encourage you, where you are, because of the way we're going to do this today, there are books, there are Bibles in the pews, and if you want to follow and and chase along with me, I encourage you to pick up one of those and turn to the book of Revelation as we get started today. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to the bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, This is the beginning of it. It's being given to John, who was the youngest apostle of Jesus Christ. It is about 93 AD, so John would be an older man by now. He'd been exiled to an island called Patmos, and this is the revelation that God gave to him while he was at Patmos, and uh, he opened up this uh, message to John, and, and he was faithful to write it down. So we're going to begin, and I'm going to bring up uh, verses 3 through 8 for you, and we'll look at those uh, as sort of the the beginning piece to this so that you have an idea of what we're looking at. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, and what is written in it, because the time is near. Now we're going to just take these one at a time, so let's go back to three. So here, here you see those who are blessed will be the ones who read this, who hear it, and who pay attention to it. They heed it. Do you see it there? Who read the words, who, who also hear it, and take it to heart, what is written in this place. So it's very important for us to know what is in this book. So it's important for us to not only read it, to hear it, and also to take it to heart. Let's go on to verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. All right, so here we see the message primarily at this time to seven real churches that that lived in Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey. We're going to see about those churches later, but seven is also a number for completeness. Seven is, is presented multiple times in the book of Revelation. But he is making this greeting, and it's coming to these people, and it is dedicated to Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, what are the seven spirits? The seven, it should say the sevenfold spirit. Now, just for a moment, if we can, slip slip over to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. This is sort of the seven aspects of the spirit of the Lord. And it says here, the spirit of the Lord, number one, will rest on him. It is the spirit of wisdom, number two, the spirit of understanding, number three, the spirit of counsel, number four, and of power, number five, the spirit of knowledge, number six, and the fear of the Lord. That's the seven-fold spirit of the Holy Spirit. Right here, you see it before you, rests on him of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now we can go back to verse five as it's presented in Revelation. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood, a dedication to Jesus. We see God the Father, we see the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus Christ represented here. So this is a letter essentially from the Trinity to all of us. Verse 6. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And amen means so may it be. And that is us included in this, a kingdom of priests to serve God the Father. Verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds. This is Jesus, his second coming, his return. It's going to happen. He is coming in the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So you, people wonder, will we know when Jesus comes back? We will know. There will be no doubt. Every eye will see Jesus when he returns. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So we see it again here. So may it be. Let it be so. Amen. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we get the introduction here. It has great credibility because of who and how this message is coming forward and where it's coming from. All right, so now we get this uh, introduction as we go through this. Uh, there's a vision, as John says. He's opening up a vision to him. And uh, the next place we're going to go is sort of the outline for the book of Revelation. So 119, chapter 1, verse 19 says this. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. So there's a threefold piece to this. It is what you have seen, in other words, the past, what is now, what is the present, and what will take place later, what is to come. So Revelation incorporates all of those things, past, present, and future. And now in this next section, I'm sorry, this earpiece is giving me some trouble. Um, in this next section, uh, so we see the, the outline of Revelation. Chapter 1 is what was. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 is what is present at that time. Chapters 4 through 22 represent what is the future and what is to come. So now he goes on and he introduces and describes and talks about these seven churches in Asia Minor that were in existence at the time. And it was indicative already in the early church within the first century, within the first really uh, 60 years of the early church, if you will, that we already see a, a change coming over the churches. There are classifications of churches. There's already been some distortions. There have been some false teachings. Their churches have taken similar patterns. And so he brings forward these seven churches based, and they're named on the basis of where they are located. And so each of these churches has uh, a location. And so we're going to look at these um, represented here in chapter 2, chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to run through this fair, fairly quickly. So the first representative church is the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus is considered the church that was orthodox in its doctrine, but it was cold in its leaving its first love. So orthodox in doctrine, but cold in leaving its first love. This would be the type of church that was following the orthodoxy of the faith, 
but there was no warmth of the spirit. There was no love there. You could go there and, and it would be orthodox, but you get the picture that they had left the first love of Jesus Christ. So they were going through the motions of what they were expected of them in this church at Ephesus, but there was no love there. There was no warmth there. There was no close fellowship there. It was just a cold orthodox doctrine church in Ephesus. Number two, Smyrna. Smyrna is a church that suffered persecution. And because of the persecution under Smyrna, it was being purged and cleansed through persecution. Nobody wants to stick around in a church that's being persecuted unless they are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So in this persecuted church, you will find dynamic, committed, faithful Christians in Smyrna because they are under persecution. And we have churches that are suffering under persecution to this day. And some of the strongest most uh, committed believers are following that. Maybe you saw this week about uh, a, a lady in Sudan who had converted to Christianity and was before a, a council of judges and uh, in, a, in a Muslim country, and she would not renounce her faith. They gave her so much pressure to do that, and because she did not, they considered her guilty of apostasy, and she has a sentence of death over her. And that exists even in our time today. All right, we're going to move on from Ephesus and Smyrna, and now he's going to talk about the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum was a worldly church. It was a worldly church. They had entangled themselves and married themselves to the things of the world, and they are told to repent of their waywardness and being so intermingled with the word world around them and they've been ensnared by that. And it says in the scriptures in, in Revelation that Christ even fights against this church. Christ fights against this church, a church that is a worldly church. Then he goes on and he describes the church at Thyatira. Thyatira is a church that tolerated sin. They didn't believe in disciplining their members according to the sin and the waywardness of their lives. And they just let things go. They had a Jezebel person in the church who was living openly in sin and the church was not doing anything about it and so a church that does not address sin among its membership and practices the discipline as outlined in matthew 18 will become a church like thyatira that tolerates sin then we go to sardis and sardis is the dead church the dead church is a church that absolutely has no fruit no joy no presence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in it. It is a dead church. There's, there's nothing about that church that has life in it whatsoever. That's the church at Sardis. Then it's in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is called the faithful church. This would be the church that you would aspire to be, the faithful church, the one that continued to follow and be obedient and love Christ in a missionary sending church. Philadelphia was held up here as a faithful church. Laodicea was the seventh church, and it was called the apostate church because it was very liberal. It was the one that tolerated all things, embraced all things. You could almost call it the universalist church. This is the one that is called, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm, therefore I will spit you out of my mouth. This is the, the liberal church that has uh, forsaken doctrine and teaching and truth and incorporated all things unto itself. And because of that, it is neither hot nor cold. It is considered the liberal church. Now, today we have very similar types of churches. Churches will take a dominant theme, 
a dominant sort of identity, if you will, and most of them will fall along the lines of these seven churches in terms of how, how faithful they are or, or, or what they might be. So when you consider what was taking place already this early in the journey of Christianity, it's been repeated out and is repeated out today unto this day that we have this type of variety of churches in our world today. So we should aspire here at Community Church to be that faithful church, the one that is alive with the presence of God, staying true to Jesus Christ as obedient followers of his, filled with the Holy Spirit and moving with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we should aspire for. That's what we should hold up accountability to. All of you have a responsibility to see to it that this church remains true to what God has set about and what he has set forward that we might be like that church at Philadelphia, the faithful church. And we see Christ moving among these churches and interacting and, and active among them. So now the church really doesn't appear again. The word church doesn't appear again in the book of Revelations until you get to the very end. And then it makes reference back to the church. So we are we have finished the whole notion of the church. And as you know, at the very end of this Revelation book, the church is now called the bride of Christ. It all comes together to be the bride of Christ. But that's not till the very end of the book of Revelation where we see that coming into play. Now, in chapter 4, we enter into this vision of John that he talks about, and there's a scene in heaven, and John is invited to come up and, and, to, and to come up into the presence of heaven. And so, in the spirit, John goes up to heaven, and so he is able to record what he sees there, and what he sees is a throne, a fixed throne, and all he can do is describe it in these very colorful and these very majestic terms that he can't even describe but he tries to use some elements of this world that he is familiar with and as you, as you look at the language in chapter 4 as he talks about this throne he he uses he uses terms like um, uh, a rainbow around the throne and emeralds and jasper and he, he just and there's 24 thrones around there clothed in white garments and crowns on their heads and and there's worship and there's worship and there's worship in heaven it's constantly filled. The theme of heaven is worship. And let's bring that up. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. The theme of heaven is worship. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne. Remember, we sang that today. We fall down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. <clears throat> Let's go on. Verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Remember Jesus, when he was on the earth, he said he had not been glorified. Not yet. Well, now he is in his glorified state. Jesus is glorified in heaven. And the activity of heaven is worship, worship, worship. If you're not comfortable with worship here, you're not going to be comfortable in heaven. Let me tell you. Worship, worship, worship is the theme of heaven. And it's glorious and it's magnificent. And I've got to say, when I see all of that, I, I certainly would not have a heart that was somewhat jaded or, or stilted or worried or 
self-conscious or wondering about whether something was, was in tune or whether or not we were doing the right thing. All we're going to do is fall on our faces and worship the Lord and just say, you are worthy, God. You are worthy. We worship you. This is what John is seeing, and it's a very comfortable and it's a very awesome sight, a very awesome sight. So then now the next thing that happens is we enter into this section of, of uh, where we're getting this, this unfolding of what's to come. This unfolding is taking place. Chapter 5, we begin with the book of the seven seals. Now, this is a document in the Roman times. It is said that a, a legal document that was sealed seven times, rolled, sealed, rolled, sealed, rolled, sealed, rolled, sealed. One document, seven seals, and the reason was is if someone wanted to break into this scroll, it would be by the time they were like three seals in, they'd be caught because this is not an easy thing to unfold and unroll. So we have a seven-sealed document, and the question is raised, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? I'm going to read quickly from chapter 5, and from now on, most of these references, you'll just have to, to uh, keep up with me on it. But here, here it begins in verse 2. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. There was no one to be found worthy of, of, uh, in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. And I began to weep. This is John speaking. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Who is that? That is Jesus. The who he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So Jesus steps forward to be the one who is worthy to open these seals one at a time. And I saw between the throne with the four living elders, it is the lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven spirits of God. Again, you see the sevenfold spirit. He took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and now he is going to open up this. And that's why we sing, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb who was slain for us. All right, so then, here we go. There are seven seals. Some would say, well, where's the rapture? Well, it might be in the white spot on the page of your book right there between chapter 3 and 4. That might be where the rapture takes place. Okay, we don't know for sure. But we're entering now what is known as the time of tribulation, the time when these seals will be unopened. And as that comes out, this is how the end of the world is going to unfold. And before the final time of this world, there is going to be such terror unfolded on this world that it's going to come in stages. Each seal, with each progressive seal, it gets worse. So the first seal that is opened is called the seal of the false peace because there will be some uh, presence appearing, and these would be the, the, the uh, four horses of the apocalypse. They, they bring in these, these horses, and it says, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So there was this conqueror that took place. He didn't even have a battle on his hands initially. So the first seal was this sort of peace that came over the world, but it was a false peace because the second seal that is open is war breaks out. 
War breaks out. He broke the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come. And another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. So the next one that came is peace is given, but it's a false peace. The war breaks out. That peace that existed is gone. It's been taken away. It no longer exists. And a sword was given to him to come. Then the third seal is famine. And you can see how this rolls out. Peace, war, famine. This is the progression of what takes place in a situation, isn't it? When there's, there's peace, there's, there's food, there's, there's opportunity, but when war breaks out, things begin to break down. There is a famine at this place, and it takes place here. And I heard a voice in the center of the four living, a quarter of wheat, there was just not enough food, it was a famine. The fourth seal is open, and it is the seal of death. It is the seal of death. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, a pale horse. It is the horse of death. And hell is following this death. And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pesticide by the wild beasts of the earth. He was given dominion over a quarter of the whole earth right here, and he just brought death and destruction everywhere he went. Death and destruction. Wouldn't it be awful to live in that quadrant of the world that existed at that time where death was unleashed and there was no stopping it? All of this going on at the time. The fifth seal that is broken is a seal that discusses people that are souls of the Lord and the word of God and those who are being martyred and those who are being killed on the face of the earth. How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood? These are the martyrs that were killed, and that they are waiting for their time, and it, it, they, they were faithful witnesses, and they had been killed, and they were the numbers of their, their, their brethren were killed, and, and now uh, that's where they're at. That's the, that's the fifth seal. Now, the sixth seal is even worse than all the other seals put together. Worse than all the others, if you can imagine that. And this would be called the seal of terror. Terror just breaking out on the world. Imagine this picture. This is what it describes in Revelation. He broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. That's how it started. And the sun became black as sackcloth. It, and, and, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth like shaking a fig tree with the figs falling out, the stars falling out of the sky. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it rolled up, you know, like it just, everything was discombobulated. We used to have those shades. You'd pull a shade down, remember that? And, and it would stick. Or if you just tweaked it a little bit, it went right back up, went flipping around. Well, that's what's going to go on with this, in, in the time of this sixth seal. Can you imagine? It's just, Terror is coming out among the people and upon the world. In fact, people were just saying, fall on us and hide from us from his presence who sits on the throne. They were just in terror. So there's six of these seals that have been opened up. Now there's a little bit of an interlude beginning in chapter 7. Just everywhere you see a little bit of grace or a little presence of God. And here it talks about 144,000. And there are some who would interpret this to mean that there were 144,000 Jews who were giving testimony to Jesus Christ on the earth. They were 12,000 from each tribe. 12 times 12, 144,000. Uh, and, and these were gathered up people and they were giving their, their witness 
and their testimony during some of this time that was going on. And as a result of their testimony, many, many, many came to know the Lord. A multitude came in, came to the Lord in this tribulation. In, in uh, 7 verse 9, it says this. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne. So there were many that came to Jesus, came to the Lord. Salvation came to them. Now uh, the seventh seal. And the seventh seal is marked by seven trumpets being blown. So we get a rollout now of another round of, of seals being uh, uh, of the seventh seal with seven trumpets. Uh, let me catch my breath for a minute. Because this is, this is rapid-fire stuff going through Revelation, my friends. But it is organized, and there is a plan, but you can get a picture in your mind of what this is like, what this is going to be like. And we can only pray that, that those you know are left, this is going to be a tough time. These are going to be dark and dangerous and difficult, and horrific and Holocaust-type times. So the seventh seal is open. And when he broke the seventh seal, chapter 8, verse 1, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, why was there silence in heaven for a half an hour? Because what was to take place in the seventh seal was going to be so, so horrific coming out as it went forward. And John had to have been just terrified seeing all this. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So they're going to be rolled out one trumpet blast after another with this description of what it's going to look like. <clears throat> so, what are these seven trumpets? What's going to take place now? In awe, the holocaust of the divine fury is being poured out, and these seven begin. The first trumpet that blows is on the vegetation. It says, the first sounded in verse 7, hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. What do you think would happen if a third of all the earth vegetation was gone? It would affect our food supply, it would affect animals, oxygenation of the earth, so a third of all the vegetation is destroyed on the sound of the first trumpet. At the sound of the second trumpet, it says, and the second angel sounded, and it says, a third of the sea became like blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had, that had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So another third of this earth is going to be the oceans, a third of the oceans, that mass, those massive bodies of water are going to be turned to to blood, uselessness, putrid, vile. And then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. Now all the, a third of all the fresh water is going to be turned away from us. It says it's going to fall on the fresh rivers and the springs and the waters. A third of all the water supply that was used by people was going to disappear. And what's going to be turning, it says, is turned to wormwood. It's going to be turned bitter. And you won't be able to drink it. It says that right here. Because they were made 
bitter. And then the fourth trumpet sounded. Remember, we're still in the seventh seal right now. We're doing seven trumpets. And the third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. This earth is going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed one trumpet blast after the other as they roll out. It's just going to be catastrophic over this world. And I looked and I heard the eagle flying in heaven. And it was saying, this is what the eagle was flying around looking in all this. And wouldn't you say this? It was saying, it says this in verse 13. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels. We're just through four trumpets. And there's three more to come. And the next three. The fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star from heaven, which fallen from the earth. And it fell. And the bottomless pit was opened. And it released all of the the demonic forces that had been trapped up and, and kept up into the bottomless pit. And like grasshoppers, they burst up out of, the, out of this place and were, were given uh, uh, rain and run, a free run. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. They were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing, nor any, any but only the men. So they're not going to wreak havoc on the earth like we've seen earlier now what's going to happen is they're not going to pay any attention to the things environmentally of the world it says here in verse 4 only the men who do not have the seal of god on their foreheads they will be killed or they will actually be tormented it says they will be tormented and it says they'll be like scorpion stings and that in those days men will seek death and will not find it and they will long to die, and death will be uh, fleeing for the, the, the torment upon them, will be, the suffering will be so great. They will beg to die and will not be able to die. And they have, in verse 11 of chapter 9, they have as king over them. This is the, the bottomless pit demon. They have as king over them. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. And it says, this is the first woe. There's three woes. There's two more woes to come. And then the sixth trumpet blows. And in this, there's a great army, 200 million, that come out from the east. And this is the army, the great army. And they come out, 200 million, to kill a third of the world. Now they will bring death. And they will do it with fire and brimstone out of their mouths. I don't know what that's going to be, but, but it's going to come forth from them, and they're going to kill a third of all the living people on the face of the earth. This army of 200 million people will be killed. Smoke and fire and brimstone. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by those plagues did not repent. Imagine all of this taking place, and if you look at chapter 9, verse 20, here's what it says. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship 
demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So even in the midst of that, there was no repentance. In chapter 10, it talks about this little book, and it's a little book which uh, was open, but it was John was told, don't say what's in this book. Don't say what's in it. So he takes it and he eats it, and it's bittersweet. It's sweet and bitter, basically. Sweet going in, bitter in the stomach. Whatever this is, we don't know what it is. It's a mystery. Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them down. So in chapter 10, you have something that is not written down for us, that John was told not to write. And he ate it so he wouldn't speak of it in his mind. He just he got rid of it so that he wouldn't be tempted to speak of it. Now, chapter 11, this is where we're going to finish our message today. It talks about two witnesses. And these witnesses are amazing. They're incredible. You get a glimpse of God's grace through these two witnesses. And these two witnesses are incredible. They will be hated, but they will have power. It says that these two witnesses um, will testify for three and a half years. They will be my witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days. And they will clothe themselves in sackcloth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Imagine that, these two witnesses. Somebody's going to come up to, to attack them. And they go, and they're burned up, up in smoke. Up in smoke, just like that. Well, I wouldn't approach anybody if I saw people getting zapped in front of me like that would you after that one breath of their mouth up in smoke so they had this power to protect themselves and they also had the authority to have uh command of of whether it rained or not or or what was happening on the earth it says all of this about these two witnesses in chapter 11 however after uh this time this Apollyon that I introduced to you and that, that was written about as the king over the demons of the bottomless pit is, is allowed to come and overtake them and kill them. And they says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is Jerusalem, and, and this is where all eyes will see them. Well, now probably the whole world is rejoicing because these these witnesses who were sent by God, who everybody was afraid of, have now been killed by this Apollyon, and their dead bodies are laid out in the street where everybody can see them. And, and it says here in verse 10, listen to this, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth, and they were dead. So they, they celebrate, everybody celebrated and gave gifts to each other. They're dead, they're dead, they're dead. Yay, hallelujah, they're dead. Well, guess what? In three and a half days, they're not dead anymore. In verse 11, it says, And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. That would be an instant replay, wouldn't it? And great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a voice from heaven saying, come up here. And God took them up to himself into heaven.
and the seventh angel sounded. And we're going to start with that next week, but I want to get to 11, uh, chapter 11, verses um, 15 and 16 to close our message today. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. This is the seventh angel of the seventh seal. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Still worship. You can't help hearing the words of the Messiah in verse 15. The kingdoms of this world have been... Let's go back to 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. I don't know how anybody could listen to this this morning and think that you did not want to be a Christian and to be a believer in Jesus Christ. God loves us. He loves you. He has redeemed you. He's gone to great lengths. But if you are not found in Christ, there is a world of hurt coming your way. So I pray that you have turned your life over to him and you walk with the redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of life through your son, Jesus Christ. And today he sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. And every once in a while, it's good for us to not only read and hear and take to heart the message of Revelation, it is for us to see you glorified and worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we're going to sing Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. That's our closing hymn today. Um, I just would say that we want to keep Alicia and Ken in your in your prayers, uh, as you know, John Wacker, a week ago today, was tragically killed in a car accident. Uh, professor of music at Western State, Colorado University. They're up, they went up to Cheyenne for his memorial service. Let's stand and sing this song. Thanks for being here today. Um, I'm going to send you off with a blessing of benediction. And um, this is graduation day for our high schoolers. Elena Kalo is graduating today. We're very proud of you, Elena, and we're grateful to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace today and forever. Amen.